Hi gang, it's me, Emma Goswell here, and welcome to this bonus episode of Effin Hormones. This is the podcast where you get to share with us as we go through all this perimenopause and menopause journey together. Usually it is me and my three mates, Helen, Bina and Terry, but this time it's a bonus episode with just me. Uh, but we really wanted to do this because we wanted to bring you an interview with the award-winning health journalist Sarah Graham because her latest book ties in so much of what we've been saying and what you've been telling us about our experiences of going to the GP. Sarah's new book is called Rebel Bodies and it explains why the system is stacked against us. Sarah is also the founder of the Hysterical Women blog, which ended up inspiring the hashtag ShipMyDoctorSays. Go and look at it. It's incredible. More of that later. Anyway, uh, it discusses all the dismissive things that health professionals have said to their female patients. I thoroughly approve. Sarah, welcome to Effin Hormones. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, you are just such a perfect tie-in with everything that women have been talking about, the menopause experience to us and other health experiences. And I'm guessing that the whole blog and then the book led from very much a personal experience, right? What led to it? For me, I talk in the book about the fact that actually my health journey, you know, I've been relatively lucky. I I don't have particular kind of ongoing health issues, but I have been writing about health for a number of years. And probably about four or five years ago, I started noticing just sort of patterns in in things that I was writing where a lot like you and, and your listeners, I was talking to women and hearing the same kinds of stories again and again. And the thing that really struck me was that, you know, it didn't matter whether I was writing about heart attacks or endometriosis or the menopause or, you know, mental illness or chronic illnesses like ME or or fibromyalgia. There were kind of the same things coming up again and again. So it struck me that there was a much wider problem here than I think we often talk about. You know, we, we talk about sexism around periods and this whole idea of oh you're just being hormonal you know you're just on your period actually that there were problems across the board in women's health and it's interesting that you called the blog hysterical women there was a very specific reason for that wasn't it yeah no absolutely i mean it was looking at that historical idea of hysteria this idea that our bodies make us irrational and almost kind of that women's bodies are inherently broken almost that we can't really be trusted to give like a curate account of our own experiences, you know, that we exaggerate or hypochondriacs and all, all of this kind of language that is tied up with women's experiences of going to their GP. Were lots of women talking to you in terms of the research that you did and giving you mad examples of, um, you know, them being called hysterical or emotional or hormonal? Yeah, all kinds of things I mean one of the first pieces that that really kind of got me started on this whole journey was a woman I interviewed with endometriosis and it had taken her 10 years to get a diagnosis she was a teenager when she first started going to the doctor so she was going with her mum and she said that both of them were made to feel like they were being hysterical that wasn't as bad as as they were making out and all women have bad periods and you just you know you just have to get used to it it's just what it's like to be born with a womb you know to be born with a womb is to suffer and that's inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it Hmm. you know a lot of stories like that a lot of stories of people being told 
oh, you know, well, we've done this test and it shows that there's nothing wrong. So therefore you must just be anxious. We can put you on antidepressants. We can send you for CBT. But, but you know, women were experiencing real physical symptoms, you know, that, that weren't just all in head. And this is so familiar to all of us that have gone through the menopause that a lot of us have been ignored or had our symptoms ignored and just told, oh, just get on with it or there's nothing wrong with you. I mean, I've been told that various times going to the doctors. I remember one occasion I collapsed on the tram and fainted on a couple of occasions, which wasn't me at all. And that's what my female doctor said to me, oh, just get over it. You know, it just sometimes people faint. Well, surely there's a reason. And, you know, is that quite a common thing that doctors just go, it happens, get over it? Absolutely. And I think it's particularly common with stuff that is related to, you know, hormones, periods, menopause, all of these things that we think of. You know, there's this idea that because it's sort of a natural process and, you know, it's something that happens to every every woman or every person with a womb, as a result, it's therefore not a medical concern. And actually, you know, there is a huge range of experiences that, you know, from people who have very few period pains, you know, very manageable, very straightforward, who kind of breeze through the menopause. But at the other end, you have people who have a really tough time and there are medical interventions that can help. Um, but we just need, we just need doctors to take it seriously. Oh. It's baffling to me as to as to why it's happened and why it's happened for so long. Do you have any answers for that? I think, I mean, it's one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book, that it is such a kind of deeply ingrained historical lack of interest, lack of research. Doctors have less training in, you know, things like menopause. It's not part of mandatory GP training, for example. Mm-hmm. So... Doctors know less about women's bodies. They know less about conditions that primarily affect women. And there are all these kind of sexist stereotypes that have been around for like literally thousands of years that mean we're just taken less seriously. And I think the two of those work together, the lack of trust and the lack of knowledge, mean that if a doctor doesn't have an answer rather than hold their hands up and go, I don't know what's going on here. I need to go away and research it or look into it. It's much easier to go, oh, have you considered that it's just you? It might just be that you're anxious or, you know, you might be making all of this up. I think a lot of it does come down to lack of training. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about quite a bit, and people are sometimes kind of surprised when I say, actually, sometimes female GPs can be actually worse than male GPs for being unsympathetic because I think if you have personally experienced something and you have your own subjective experience of that, say you're a postmenopausal GP who had a really easy time of the menopause, didn't need to think about HRT, it wasn't a big deal, I think it can be quite easy to go, oh, well, you know, it's not that bad. What are you making such a fuss about? Rather than kind of recognizing that there is such a kind of multitude of different experiences often i do find um people expect a female gp to be more sympathetic but and and often they are but it isn't always the case now one of the things i know you talk about in in your blog and probably in the book as well is the pain gap what can you tell us about that so the pain gap is kind of a general term it's it's part of the broader gender health gap 
but it looks specifically at the way that women in pain are treated relative to the way that men in pain are treated. So there's been quite a bit of research over the last couple of decades around both kind of acute and chronic pain. So it's things like in A&E, for example, men are more likely to be given painkillers than women. Women are more likely to be given things like sedatives, anti-anxiety medication, or or just dismissed and told that it's all in their head. So, so those are kind of at an acute level. And then sort of chronic pain, there's evidence that women experience more chronic pain. They experience more severe chronic pain. But actually, men with chronic pain receive better treatment. It's part of a broader inequality that I look at in the book, but pain, obviously, it's, it's a really big one. It has a big impact on people's lives, and it is something that does seem to particularly affect women. There's kind of this idea that as a woman, you're, you are built to endure pain, and therefore you should just put up with it. Do you think that's there, or do you think there's also an element of men being more confident when they go to GPs or they go to hospitals and being more pushy and getting a better service? I don't know. What... Is there any evidence for that? Potentially an element of that. Again, there has been some research into this around kind of advocacy, and it found, generally speaking, there isn't a huge difference in terms of how prepared men and women are to advocate for themselves. So certainly not enough of a difference to count for the difference in, in treatment outcomes. Gosh. Well, when you started talking about the difference in something basic as like relief for pain it just made me feel incredibly angry you must get so angry doing all the research you do right absolutely I do and it's it's a really tricky one because sometimes I think I feel almost slightly desensitized to it like I hear really shocking things and it's just like oh god yeah no just you know it's just another thing on top of all of the shocking things that that I hear all the time but I definitely do still get angry about there are some stories in particular there was one, um, actually, interesting, you mentioned shit, my doctor says. There was one on there where it was a female medic who had been working in surgery with a, a male surgeon. And they were doing, again, it's an endometriosis one. They were doing so the laparoscopy surgery to investigate endometriosis. And he said he hated doing these surgeries because basically all of the women were just effing mental. And I just, I just thought that was such a shock. You know, you're, you're here to diagnose somebody with a condition and before you've even cut them open, you've bitten them off. Just, oh. You know, so stuff like, you know, stuff like that still, still has the capacity to shock me and anger me. And a lot of the time I just feel frustrated, despairing at how difficult it seems to fix the system you know, because it is such, such a big, deep-rooted problem. It really, really is, isn't it? Anything else that you researched that you thought this has really genuinely shocked me? I, you know, I need to, I need to, I really need to write this book and highlight these particular problems. I mean, I think some of the things that I was particularly keen to write about that perhaps I felt were missing from from the broader conversation were kind of some of the more intersectional issues. So I was really keen to make sure that there were experiences of trans and non-binary people. Um, I think often when we talk about sort of trans inclusion in women's health issues, there's a lot of kind of vitriol and backlash. Um, and so I wanted I wanted to give those voices a mm-hmm. space, you know, because they're often not heard. Um, and a lot of the vitriol and backlash comes from 
from ignorance, from people making assumptions about those experiences. That was, you know, not not necessarily something that I found particularly shocking, but something that I felt very strongly needed to be in the book, needed to be part of it. Yeah, well, I'm personally very glad that you have included LGBT stories, you know, in your blog and in the book. Did you speak to many trans women um, about their experiences? Yeah, there are a couple of trans women in there. So there was one who had gone to A&E with, I think it was kidney stones. She'd gone in with kidney stones. She was in absolute agony, really, really painful condition. And um, as soon as the doctor found out that she was trans, his attitude just completely changed. And it was like, oh, well, it's the hormones that you're taking. You know, they're not sweetie. It's it's because you're on HRT. And there was this sort of this sort of idea that that being on HRT was this really kind of frivolous lifestyle choice that she was making and that therefore she'd brought the kidney stones on herself, which I just, you know, again, just found really, really shocking. Any other stories particularly relating to the menopause that um, you heard from women? Yeah, so a lot of them, um, I mean, I think the the ones that really struck me in particular were around kind of mental health concerns in the menopause, how easy it seemed to be to write that off as, you know, you're stressed. There's, there's all these things going on in your life at midlife where, you know, there were people whose perhaps their kids were going off to uni and leaving home or they were taking on more responsibility at work and it seemed to be very easy for their GP to just go, oh, you're stressed because of this. Maybe reduce your hours at work. Maybe it's just because your kids have left home, you know. And and to just put them on antidepressants and, and kind of not even not even join the dots. Absolutely. Um, I mean, do you think it's getting any better? I mean, I certainly was fobbed off by two doctors, two female doctors, actually, who tried to give me antidepressants hoping that it would cure all my symptoms but it didn't because I needed HRT but I have finally you know been prescribed HRT and got doctors to see sense but do you think things are getting better for women or or, and if not what what do we need to do what what needs to change in the world I think things are getting better I mean part of what I wanted to do with the book was I didn't want it to just be catalogue of all the problems and all of the horrible experiences and things that are wrong. I wanted it also to be you know, a celebration of patient advocacy, patient activism, and you know, a recognition of the fact that the conversation has moved forward in recent years. We are, see- we are seeing change. I think it's frustratingly slow, and I think it will continue to be frustratingly slow, probably. But, you know, I mean... With menopause in particular, we've seen such an amazing movement of activism, things like the Make Menopause Matter campaign, the menopause mandate. There's all sorts of stuff happening around it, which is getting it on the political agenda. Things are moving in the right direction, certainly in terms of awareness. I think with a lot of things, we need the funding and the resources to back it up. You know, we need GPs to have the training we need there to be specialist services that GPs can refer on to if it's beyond their scope. So, so re- resourcing is, is a big issue, but certainly I think the conversation is, is going in the right direction. They're definitely part of a big menopause revolution, which is a very small part of it, but it's, uh, it's definitely things are changing over the years. So just to go back to the, I know you didn't start it, but you spawned, uh, we think, the hashtag shit my doctor says. I've been looking at that online. My God, there's some shocking things on there right yeah no absolutely it's just astounding 
Yeah, no, I did. I, I started it in 2020, I think it was. And I've since kind of discovered that similar sorts of other hashtags going on. And again, really horrifying stories. Well, the one that just shocked me when I was looking and I just had to tell my girlfriend, I was like, you won't believe this. Some woman went to the doctor and said it was very, very painful for her to have sex with her husband. And the doctor turned around and went, maybe you could please him in other ways and give him blowjobs. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean, like it's nothing to do with her pleasure. Absolutely. And this is, again, something that I talk about in the book is the fact that female pleasure has just not been prioritised, you know. The idea is that if you're... If you're having issues with sex, then it's it's all about your husband or your boyfriend or whatever, and that you don't have any needs needs of your own. So I hear a lot of that kind of stuff, and also you know things like oh, Troy just having a glass of wine or you know stuff like that, really really patronising that just doesn't get to the heart of what women are dealing with. Have you had any backlash from medical professionals going, you know, we're trying to do our jobs, it's very difficult, we're underfunded, we're understaffed. I think in general there is a recognition that there is a problem across uh, the medical community. And I think the other thing that I have been very conscious and very careful of doing is recognising within the, that these are systemic problems that understaffing, under-resourcing contributes to, to what's going on. So the final chapter of the book I talk about the issues specifically that doctors and other healthcare professionals are facing, you know, whether that is dealing with sexism or homophobia or racism in their own line of work, um, or as you say, the the kind of the funding constraints, the lack of services and, and understaffing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was very clear that I didn't want the book to be about doctor bashing Obviously, you know, there are some cases where the things that doctors say are are just unacceptable. Inexcusable, yeah, yeah. But you're a journalist, so you're very balanced. Sarah. Yeah, no, I, I, I wanted it to be balanced and nuanced and to get both sides across, definitely. Yeah. Um, and finally, any advice for women who are, you know, just a bit disheartened by the gender gap in healthcare and frustrated by it all and you know, feeling intimidated going to their GPs or going to their health providers because of it all? Any advice of how to deal with yeah, it all? I think it, I think it is really hard. And one of the things that I come back to a lot in my work is this idea that, you know, we shouldn't have to fight for ourselves. We shouldn't have to advocate. It shouldn't be such a struggle. The onus shouldn't be on us. Um, but I do, you know, having having said all of that, I do... At the end of each chapter in the book, I've included a little toolkit, which gives this kind of practical advice. And there are things like tracking your symptoms is really useful. Being able to go into your appointment prepared because GP appointments in particular, they're so tight on time. The more information you can give them up front, the easier it kind of is for them. Doing a bit of research using those kind of reliable sources like the NHS website and other kind of reputable sources to go in feeling a bit knowledgeable, a bit armed with some resources perhaps, or having a look at the nice guidelines before you go in, maybe take somebody with you, a friend, a partner, whoever, um, who can be a sort of either there as an advocate to back you up or just there for kind of moral support can 
make a really big difference. That's a good tip. I hadn't even thought about taking taking backup, but it's a good idea because sometimes it's a bit bamboozling going to the doctors, isn't it? Really appreciate you joining me, Sarah, for this special episode. And don't forget, Sarah's book, Rebel Bodies, A Guide to the Gender Health Gap Revolution, is out now. And that is it for this episode of Effin Hormones. I will be back with the girls, don't worry, very, very soon. Uh, don't forget, please do rate, review and follow this podcast because that way loads more people will get to find out about us. Cheers. Bye. Bye.